Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Sekim speaks to Fleetwood Grobler about the future of traditional fuels and green hydrogen. Hello and welcome to the Think Big series, a collection of dialogues with leading speakers brought to you by PSG. I'm Alicia Sekim, and it's great having you join us once again as we bring you independent insights that help you in turn formulate your own opinions on some of our country's most pressing issues. In the spotlight today, the future of traditional fuels and green hydrogen. And I think this conversation aptly timed with COP27 currently underway and the focus expected to move from planning to actual implementation. So the how-to of it all. Of course, as we walk this path to net zero, South Africa has got its sights on the ambition of it becoming a major producer of green hydrogen, not only to aid its decarbonization efforts, but also to boost local economic growth and employment. So what does the future of green hydrogen look like? And how is a player like Sassel, one of South Africa's biggest polluters, supporting the green hydrogen vision in this transition to a green economy. Sassel CEO Fleetwood Krobler is in conversation with me today as he sits at the helm of transforming Sassel to a more sustainable and future-fit growth enterprise. Fleetwood plays a leading role in South Africa's energy transition. He's a member of the Green Hydrogen Panel, the inaugural chair of the Energy Council of South Africa, a board member of the Belgium-based Hydrogen Council, and a founding and steering committee member of the African Business Leaders Coalition of the UN's Global Compact as well. So Fleetwood, thanks so much for joining us today. And even with all of that under your belt, transitioning Sassel is going to be no easy feat. We're looking at a company here that's been converting coal to synthetic products for more than half a century, now needing to pivot to cleaner fuels fast. Sassel didn't even have a plan to transition to green energy until little over a year ago. It's now targeting net zero emissions by 2050. Has realistic ambition been set? Yeah, good uh, good day, Alicia. And uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion because I think it's a very important context that we need to get our arms and minds around as we transition to a lower carbon future not only in Sassel, but also in South Africa, as well as uh, globally. Uh, because as we know today, the whole trajectory of uh, global trends in energy supply and consumption are patently unsustainable environmentally, economically, and socially. So Sassel is in the middle of that realization. So how do we see ourselves to be able to reinvent the company, basically? So. At the heart of this lies the technology because Sassel is using the technology called Fisher Trops, and uh, that technology is basically agnostic to the source of carbon that it used to make the products or the hydrogen. So Fisher Trops use both hydrogen and carbon, CO and H2. Very technical now, but that's what the process does. And uh, that carbon and hydrogen today comes from coal and it comes from gas. So importantly is then to say, if you take that away and you, you, you replenish it or you replace it by sustainable sources of carbon and green hydrogen, 
the Fisher Trops still make the products that we do today as Sussel. And that is at the heart of this reinvention is that as we transition from coal to gas as a transitionary feedstock to sustainable feedstocks like green hydrogen and sustainable carbon sources, then we reinvent ourselves. And that is the end game for us to reach uh, our ambition of net zero is by changing the feedstock front into our processes. But on the outset, on the, on the downstream side, we still make the products that is all now sustainable because you started on a sustainable entry point. And like you say, Fleetwood, you know, climate risk aside, we've got a global operating environment to consider here. So let's put that into the spotlight. The EU scramble to find new sources of energy to reduce its reliance on Russia has been driving the impetus of renewables like green hydrogen as well. You know, new solutions, new energy sources are the name of the game. You've been uh, quoted yourself saying, you know, the sunset of the oil industry is staring us in the face. So what's your assessment of the energy challenges we face more broadly? broadly speaking, locally, and where that stands relative to the global energy supply constraints? Now, if we look at, um, and I think very topical today is the, the energy crisis in Europe, and I'll, I'll segue from there back to South Africa, because we also have a, a crisis with the, the, the non-rateable supply of electricity in that sense. But if I look at Europe, we have seen over the past year that energy security becomes, again, a very big topic on everyone's mind. And all citizens and all people in Europe has been very much concerned about how are they going to mitigate and navigate this uh, energy crisis because of the war in Euro Ukraine. Now, now, the good part is, is that, you know, Germany, for example, and Italy, Germany is more than 50% they got uh, their supply from Russian uh, natural gas, and Italy is about 40%. So, so they have a big challenge because those supply routes are not in a, anymore available. So the reduction of usage of natural gas is one element. It's almost like we used to electricity load shedding. It is European gas load shedding. How to reduce the industries to use less gas in a, in a phased and a measured manner. And I think if I reflect also on our operations in Germany and Italy, we're also making plans to be able to reduce the natural gas intake by at least 40% during this next year or two so that we can continue to, to produce and operate. And I think that's achievable. We've seen the gas reservoirs in, in Europe has been filled up. They are navigating now through a very important LNG import uh, phase where that will plug the, the, you know, the supply of gas uh, that is not coming through the Russian pipeline system. And so I think that also brings another psyche to the, the discussion. If they can navigate that through this winter and into next year, that will be quite a feat because that will be the realization you can move to other alternative security of energy sources and that you keep your overall absolute ultimate objective to decarbonize still intact because that was the risk here is that that people will say okay let's put the long-term sustainable path of decarbonization now on the back burner the thing is just energy security and i i think you know it is more that it is an and discussion it's about energy security and being able to decarbonize and keep that steadfast 
Moving Absolutely. back to South Africa. And we're going we're to get into that, you know, the decarbonization agenda in more depth in just a bit. Before we do, let's bring it to a home for a minute, because we're all too familiar, as you say, with ESCOM's woes. Have these, how have, you know, these constraints and the resultant outages here specifically impacted Sassel? And how much of your operation fleet would rely now on self-generation? How much still on power coming through from ESCOM? So first of all, our Sasselberg uh, refinery and our Secunda operations are um, earmarked as, as refineries and therefore we are not subjected to load shed shedding in that we prioritized uh, supply as a national key point in that sense. And therefore we had no direct impact of load shedding into our operations that we had to stop operating or that we had to shut down because of not available uh, any electricity availability. So, so for your context, uh, we use about 1.5 gigawatt of electricity. Uh, of that, uh, ESCOM supply still 60% of that energy need, electricity need. And uh, we generate ourselves um, the remainder 40%. Now that 40% is basically done through self-generation through gas to power or steam, coal to steam to power, basically, uh, you know, the, the ESCOM system uh, in that sense. And we are able to supply then um, up to the five, 600 megawatts of our own generated electricity. And that, therefore we are sort of balanced, but we, we have a net uh, buy-in of electricity. But fortunately we were prioritized in the industry as a refinery not to be impacted by load shedding. Where we are in Sasselberg in the chemical plant, which is not a refinery, there we had the ability to ramp up. We've got gas engines in Sasselberg, and that uses natural gas that we bring in from Mozambique. And that gave us the ability to ramp up then the gas engines to supply about 120 to 140 megawatt um, is the is the nameplate to be able to sustain the operations, albeit at a reduced level, but in the worst case, we will still be able to produce. Okay, so that's the local and global context challenging the status quo on prevailing energy markets. Where needed, it's also triggering shifts in the way business operates. And essentially, Sassel, like you said, is having to reinvent itself, right? We have South Africa's biggest fuel producer hitting the accelerator now on its green hydrogen plans. What exactly are we looking at? So in the context, why green hydrogen? Because we believe that if I just bring back again the view of the, of the Hydrogen Council, the Global Hydrogen Council, they foresee that the world will need up to 400 million ton of green hydrogen by 2050, with an interim milestone of about 35 million tons by 2030, or, or about 200, between 25 to 200, it's a big range, but, but it's a huge number. So just for context, again, in South Africa, Today, Sassel uses between two to two and a half million tons of gray hydrogen coming from the coal or gas. So you have a captive demand in South Africa then to say if you can transition those um, hydrogen that's gray to green, that means we have a captive demand of 2.5 million tons of green hydrogen. The question here is, when is it affordable to pivot to the green hydrogen? I think that lies at the heart of it. Whilst it's feasible, we can do it today, but it's not cost 
um, affordable in that sense. It's not economically viable. So the cost of green hydrogen today is around three to five dollar a kilogram. We need it to be below two dollars a kilogram. If it's around just under one point five dollar a kilogram, it makes a very economic, sensible choice to pivot to green hydrogen. So, so that's the context. Why are we excited here? Is that whilst we know that today the cost of green hydrogen is not in this range that we can use it in all our operations, we believe that there's opportunity not only for South Africa being an exporter of green hydrogen, but also to develop a hydrogen economy outside Sussel's need for that captive demand, but also in mobility, in supplying a green hydrogen for steel manufacturing, for green steel. And so mobility, we talk about fuel cell electric vehicles. And this is typically going to be a sweet spot for long haul, heavy duty vehicles, heavy duty mining vehicles. They, they will flourish because it's a 24-7 operation. You can't stop to charge batteries. And therefore, you know, it is, it's going to be viable. So we're excited. Those are the opportunities is to industrialize South Africa under a green hydrogen economy with the advent of opportunity to export green hydrogen because of yes. South Africa's endowment of sun, wind, and precious metals, as well as mobility and industrial use. So we need to start driving scale here in order to reach those cost imperatives, right? But what it puts the spotlight on Fleetwood is the fact that this now moves beyond um, a siloed approach, because being factored into these equations are, like you say, entire hubs, production and export hubs. And you know, scale that quite frankly requires collaboration, requires partnerships if it's going to work. So what kind of conversations are you having in that regard? I think, Alicia, what, what we have to be very, very clear on is that the age and the era of collaboration will be the name of the game going forward. It is not anymore companies that have a, you know, a closed strategy and they come up and they, they think they've got a competitive advantage by going it alone. I think those days are, are, are starting to get counted. So we are more into an age and an era where collaboration is key. So let me take a couple of examples here. I'll mention uh, examples. We've made uh, recently an uh, announcement to cooperate with uh, ArcelorMittal, also um, having a very clear ambition to decarbonize. And we have looked at the opportunity. What can we do jointly together? Now, in the past, you would have never seen these type of industries collaborate because it's totally different, you know, sort of industry, steel versus petrochemical. And, uh, and there's the opportunity because once you start talking about it, because of our know-how, our ability to put these type of projects together and the need for, for green steel that uses green hydrogen, as well as that there's CO2 coming out of the current steel manufacturing, which could be harvested, captured, and we can use that CO2 again in our process by turning it into useful product. And there's the symbiotic thing. But if you haven't collaborated to talk about these things, you would never come to this opportunity where you can harness the synergy. And that is just one example. I think there are many others. So if we look at the Buhubai export hub, the Saldana by um, hydrogen collaboration, all of those would be on the basis that it is not a Sassel 100% uh, venture, but we've got the know-how to put these together. But once we get to the feasibility and beyond into the development stage of 
approaching an investment decision, we would collaborate with others and we would probably have a 20 to 30% stake in such venture, but we will not put everything ourselves in and follow our disciplined capital approach that we are committed to. Fleetwood, let's put those projects. So if we use the, you know, the, the relationship you're, you're getting into with ArcelorMittal, for example, into perspective here, because beyond the environmental imperative, how much of a solution does the scale of these pro uh, projects and green hydrogen specifically put on the table to solving our energy crisis? Does it solve for the energy shortfall in the short and the long term? I think we should see these developments much more in the lens of um, it is addressing the sustainability of the hard to abate uh, industrial sectors rather than a short-term fix to provide energy through uh, the outcome of electricity. Because whilst you would be using electricity to drive an electrolyzer to make green hydrogen, so can you generate the, the sustainable electricity for end use in homes and the industry itself. So. So what I'm talking about is the lens where we would enable the sustainability of our industry from a low carbon perspective rather than supplying in the short term, uh, you know, electricity. And how fast can we move on these? I mean, we know that these projects are still in the feasibility phase, but how long before such studies are estimated to start running if uh, they prove to be feasible? Yes, and I, and I think a lot, lot of it depends on how you can uh, secure because we will not embark on these if we haven't got any secure offtake on it. So you have to have a back-to-back. -back. And we are talking to, to countries in the EU, EU um, Germany, Netherlands, uh, France, Italy, uh, all, all of those countries in the EU is interested in, in, uh, in some hydrogen. We are looking at the Far East and Japan. We had a, a recent roadshow in Japan and Korea where they are very interested in that. So how far is it in the future? I think these type of ventures take anything between uh, you know, six to eight years really to come to fruition, just yeah. because of the complexity and the, and the offtakes and the bankability of these type of projects. So I would see that only towards the end of this decade that we would be seeing the first scale hydrogen. I'm not talking about we are... Uh, going to produce the first green hydrogen end of next year in Sasselburg, where we repurposed some of our electrolyzers there. But that would be two, you know, between three to five ton of green hydrogen per day. What I'm talking here about is at scale, where you talk about 100,000 or up to 500,000 tons of green hydrogen per annum that you would be able to produce and export. Exactly. And I asked the question because at the heart of it all, as you say, is the economic viability of these renewable energy uh, projects, considering the inherent inefficiencies of the technologies, right? Um, as you can imagine, Sassel's shareholders are going to be a bit, uh, a bit wary here. They're not going to want to uh, foot the bill for what could potentially be a hugely expensive endeavor, especially with memories fresh Fleetwood on you know, how project costs ballooned at Lake Charles. So where you've just recovered from an oil price crash, a U.S. expansion of your chemical business that went over budget, increasing your debt burden, what's the cost estimate on this? How much is this pivot going to cost Sassel? So first of all, let, let me put in context the two or three phases that we look at. So the first phase is really to reset the company. That's what we've done now in the last two years is really to bring the company back, re, re uh, set the balance sheet, 
you know, having a restored dividend. So that's the first phase. The next phase is leading up to our commitment of a 30% reduction of greenhouse gases by 2030. And that is a delivery through three areas. The first area is that we will achieve reduction in CO2 out of our operations by employing more renewable energy, and we're making very good progress there. So we're procuring 600 megawatt of renewable energy with ambition to up that to 1.2 gigawatt. And I think there's no risk, and it's, it's actually economically beneficial to get renewable energy at, the, at, a, at your gate rather than uh, buy it from the grid today. And so from that respect, I think there's no risk in terms of any, any of, the, of, of the mention that you made in, in terms of the other big investments. The other one is energy efficiency, you know, implementing stop steam leaks, making sure you employ the latest, most efficient electric motors or pumps or, or whatever you can to increase that. But the last and the biggest area is then to, to um, put more gas and replace coal. Uh, by by using more gas and and that is also a well-known technology we have been able to um, to do the preparation for processing more gas in our facilities there's no risk on technology we've done such projects in the past which which we completed within cost and schedule so there's no risk there so what i would like to to, to contextualize is for our first ambition or our first goal rather the target of 30 percent I think the pathways to achieve that would be within our region. We've indicated it will cost us between 2024 and 2030 anything between 15 to 25 billion rand. And, and that's the nature of the investment to prepare for gas and, and reduce coal, as well as to introduce some of these other areas that I mentioned. And so that is within the realms of our capital spend. And we shared that with shareholders they much, very much okay with the storyline of how we implement and how we get there. Now, if I talk about the new value pools of, uh, of low carbon, like green hydrogen in mobility or in export, I think that is an area where we've also committed to our shareholders. We will never go alone in these type of big projects. We'll de-risk it with partners that are familiar with these technologies. We will enter into offtakes that secure the market and we will um, partner also with the right uh, sustainable sun and wind partners. So guys that is very familiar with these type of projects to install renewables. And then the remaining risk is basically the electrolyzer or the ammonia plant. And there we believe we've got lots of experience in terms of how to handle and how to produce and manage that part of the equation. Look, as uh, bottom line, right, as difficult, as expensive as the road might be, there's no running away from the fact that something has to be done to decarbonize. So let's look at support structures here. Where's policy at, you know, regulatory framework in supporting this agenda? So that is the area that is very nascent. And I think that's why we have um, focused on establishing a couple of um, uh, signposts in the journey to decarbonized South Africa. And the first one was the Energy Council, because the Energy Council, the concept there is that anything related to energy, and let's just look at what that is. It is electricity generation, it's fuels, it's sustainable fuels, it's hydrogen, it's storage. And, and, and then, of course, the just transition and funding is also part and parcel of it. But 
But that is the South Africa in part of the opportunity that business can partake in in any of those fields there. And the Energy Council concept is that it has to speak from a South African Inc. voice to the touch point of the regulator to, to get impact and efficiency. Because if every company that goes to, to government and say, look, you have to change this regulation, you need to do that. They have their hands full just to go through all of those, those engagements. But if you say, I speak on behalf of these industries, and we think these are the things, and this is how we're going to help you to achieve that, or to put it in place, it's a total different conversation. And so, so that's the idea is, is to, to really leverage the policy and the regulatory environment through the nascent establishment now of the Energy Council. But there are yeah. also many other companies that are taking the lead. So we are taking the lead, as I've said now, in putting these feasibility studies together in terms of green hydrogen and, and to, to, to cultivate an ecosystem of hydrogen in various applications. And I think those are the type of things that will you know, push the regulator and the policy side of the equation. Okay, a step further from that, do we have the right infrastructure support, uh, Fleetwood, to become this export hub that's being envisioned here? You know, new energy solutions, one thing, getting policies in place, another, but it all amounts to very little if we don't have the right uh, supportive infrastructure in place as well. And you're no stranger to the pressures exerted by Transnet's woes. Yes, so uh, definitely the case. So infrastructure would be key. So if we look at the export play for green hydrogen, you can't export it as the gas green hydrogen. You need to put it in a carrier, and typically that carrier is green ammonia. So you basically put up the ammonia plant that uses the green hydrogen, and, and that is then exported in bulk. It's a liquid. It's exported then at bulk. So you need harbor infrastructure. You need pipeline infrastructure. You need some network transmission infrastructure to put all of that together. Now, if I look at the, the challenge in an area like Bukhubai, there is the opportunity to establish a new port because the port is not only for the green hydrogen, it's for all the minerals to be exported from the Northern Cape. So the play of developing the port there is dual. It is gonna be a liquid bulk export as well as a dry bulk through all the uh, mining commodities that could be exported. Like the Saldana trajectory to Saldana Bay, many of the opportunity lies into get a shorter route to export place from Northern Cape, Northern Cape mining activities. If I take a Saldana Bay, for example, well-developed, there's already a, a steel mill there doing plate rolled sheet. Um, that has got more infrastructure. And the beauty of putting uh, green hydrogen together is that you can do it on an island basis. You can connect the sun and the wind and the electrolyzer within a radius of 50 or 80 kilometers. And you can do that on a, standalone grid basically and and that means that you're not dependent on you know a 10-year program to say is is it going to be invested timely from a from the utility supplier point of view you can island these and, and just define and develop and do it you know, these are all important questions, uh, Fleetwood, because these are the kinds of operational challenges in integrated value chains that 
offset prices, no matter how good things might get on that end. And we don't want to be, uh, you know, squandering our potential. We've squandered our competitive advantage before. We've missed riding a number of commodity waves before, and that despite our resources. Are we coming up against stiff competition, the likes of Chile and Australia, North Africa even? Yes, definitely. That is the case. And, and let me put in perspective, what is our biggest challenge with respect to that? From an endowment perspective, that means from, from a, um, you know, a rateable online time of solar and wind, we, we, we weigh up uh, amongst the best there. Maybe the wind is not as good as Chile, but in terms of our coastline, the, the wind speeds, the radiation, it stacks up to, to all of those countries that you've mentioned. So what is the differentiator here? If I compare ourselves to Saudi, they are putting up big, big facilities in the renewable space. Um, they enable the industry by supplying a very, very good financing package behind that. And if they are, you know, um, this decoupling from their sovereign, that is the challenge we have got in South Africa. Our sovereign, sovereign debt rating is a certain uh, percentage. And these type of product projects need almost to be decoupled from the sovereign rating and have a, a better concessional or better terms. Because if you don't have that, then we also not be able to compete with those countries where the cost of capital will be much more affordable for these type of projects. So I think the biggest driver for cost is the electrolyzer. Secondly, it's the renewable electricity supply. And then the third thing is the cost of capital and your financing uh, structures. Yeah. So in your mind, Fleetwood, what's this reindustrialization looking like? And I guess more, more importantly, how much of the growth, uh, you know, it sprouts, do you see it, uh, do you see filtering through to creating new green jobs? Because while this economic development is pivotal, you know, we can't lose sight of the just transition, especially for a developing economies like ours, that socioeconomic context matters. Are you getting on the ground buy into the plan where perhaps you know, 2050 targets are too far off for those in the workforce to pay any attention to just yet, but certainly where 2030 targets and their resultant impacts are going to matter. Yes, definitely. A just transition is very, very much uh, a strategic imperative because we cannot transition if we leave anyone behind because that, that is just an opportunity that we need to do it right this time, as you say. Now, what is a just transition? A just transition also means that there's different lenses. So in my global compact with the United Nations for this African Business Leaders Coalition, I realized very soon that, you know, when we talk like um, between the, the southern tip and the northern tip of Africa, there's a different meaning and understanding for a just transition. So for South Africa, it means that we need to decarbonize and then it's sustainable carbon going forward. But for a country like Namibia or, or, or others, they haven't industrialized on coal or gas. Their just transition is about how, do the, how does the community now partake in the sustainable electricity and hydrogen that is, that is being developed in those countries. So, so there's a different measure in terms of what is a just transition. But suffice to say is that the, the study that um, IHS market did uh, last year indicate that if we transition to a, a renewable electricity supply over time, that 
that has the ability to generate or to present 370,000 new jobs in that alone, just to meet the energy requirement in electricity. So I do think there are other opportunities like the mine of the future also need more miners. So you can almost argue if you need more copper or cobalt or lithium, that mining activity will go up. There will be more jobs there, but the coal will ramp down. But is there a, a segue from coal to those minerals in the mining uh, job area? So those are part of the collaboration that in the just transition you know, mindset, we need to, as industry, talk to each other and see how we can make it palatable and how impact the livelihood of our people and societies that we have put together over so many Absolutely. years in this industrial lab. Absolutely. And Fleetwood, I'm very cognizant of time here. So in the final minute, you know, while we're talking about targets, how does this transition translate to ongoing profitability for Sassel, even in a lower oil price world? I mean, we had uh, a few questions come through looking at whether we're looking at potentially uh, a share buyback and even a special dividend potential coming through down the road. Well, I, I think, you know, we, we have been very clear that we have to set a target for being sustainable in a low oil price world. And that is the reset that we've done, the Sassel 2.0, we've introduced with very clear financial targets. And we believe that will make us resilient in a lower oil price world. Now, that is all relative. I mean, if the oil price is, is 65 or whether it's 95, that is a big difference on the bottom line of, of the, the wind in the sails that you get to prepare you better to consider those capital allocation options of preparing for gas, a special dividend, a reinvestment in, in shares. So, so all of that comes to play. But I think what is important is that we will be very, very disciplined in our capital application, considering all of those options, but also make sure that Sassel stays on the decarbonized route and the commitment we made in terms of achieving the 30% reduction whilst remaining profitable and moving to a net zero ambition whilst we grow new sustainable value pools. Fleetwood, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for having joined us today. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. So thank you for your time and uh, for sharing some of those future plans with us as well. To our viewers, remember, this webinar will be available via podcast as well. And as always, we welcome your feedback. So do communicate with us and look out for our next speaker on the Think Big series.